Welcome to the Real Clear Values podcast with Tom English. This is a podcast about values, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Our values are our why, and they're central to our well-being and success in a world full of distractions, temptations, and challenges. I created this podcast to explore how values affect our personal lives, our relationships, and the wider world in which we live. Join me, Tom English, as I uncover which values help and which values hinder in the pursuit of success that's both meaningful and sustainable. Let's begin. It's my pleasure today to be speaking with Mario McCracken, who is the author of this new book, Really Care For Them. Mario, thank you so much for joining me on the Real Clear Values podcast. Hey, Tom. Thanks. Yeah, super excited to be here. Thank you. Mario, to start things off, you are just putting out this new book. Has it actually been released yet, or is this just an advanced copy that I'm looking at? Um, yeah, I just I gave you an advanced copy. I have some physical advanced copies, but officially it comes out in October. Okay, super, super. And how things are going? How think are things going in the run up to that? I think so, pretty well. Yeah, it seems to be getting good reviews. People seem to think it might help them. So, and I just got my first bulk order today from a VP of sales for a company where they ordered the book for the entire sales force. So that was kind of exciting, right? So, wow. yeah, it's fantastic, fantastic. The, the first big game sale, then. Yeah, exactly. Excellent. So, who's the book for? You mentioned that you, you've sold it to a VP of sales. So that probably gives us a clue. But but who is it for? Perhaps beyond sales. Yeah. So. I think of sales as everybody in any job they've ever had, no matter if it's an accountant or project management, you're selling something to somebody. And so while this book was written for sales professionals specifically, in general, it was written for anybody that needs to share an idea that other people might have to buy into, whether that's Mm -hmm. with time, money, personal investment, support, whatever it is. And Mm -hmm. so it's just, it's, it's really written to get people in the right mindset instead of having a combative selling approach where I have to convince somebody of something. It's more, how do I help them and show enough care for them so that they'll want what I have to give? Mm, mm, mm. That leads nicely into my next question. And and that is, what is the book's core message? That there is some clue in the, in the title, <laughs> in the title really, yeah. really care for them. But, but what is the core message? Why, why should we care? Well, then you can go really, really deep into why we should care, right? We're all humans. And so, yeah. Humans need connection. And the best way to build that connection is through positive interactions with other humans. And that connection is really vital and needed. But I think from, at least from my experience, the more someone feels you care about them, the more you end up trusting them. And the more Mm -hmm. you trust someone, the more you're willing to share your vulnerabilities. And the only way to really Mm -hmm. help someone is to know where they're vulnerable and whatever the product is, whatever the idea is, there's, it's a bridge to something else. It's not the end result, but it's a bridge to something else. And if, so if you're going to follow a, go over a bridge with someone, you need mm-hmm. to trust them. And I think this, I think the secret solution is if you care enough. So if you care enough, you're going to study and become an expert in your field. If you care enough, you're going to find out, be curious enough to find out what'll help them. So I think the yeah. real secret to sales is caring and it's very simple, but in practice, sometimes it's hard to do because there's other factors at play. Yes, absolutely. We're all human as well. And we have all these distractions that, that pop up and, and temptations to, to do other things. And then just the, the general vicissitudes of life as well, which make it all the more interesting and exciting. So, so really, like you say, the answer might be something quite simple and straightforward, like care, but, 
we've we're on an obstacle course here we don't have a a straight route through the the yeah. book itself i have to say mario is, is quite a tour de force in terms of how much you've included in it and the the nuggets of wisdom that, that you've put in there and the variety of sources is really quite impressive you have quotes from everyone from gary vaynerchuk to religious leaders then you've got cialdini's six principles of influence and things like that how did you how did you go about compiling all of this information and then really making the editorial decision about what piece of wisdom from other people are going to make the cut and how are you going to meld those things in with your own wisdom as well well yeah that's a that's a really good question so that's actually the first time I've ever been asked that specific question. So that's pretty good. I think the basic idea was most salespeople, sales professionals don't like to read. And mm. that's, I've met many career professionals. I would say over half have never read a book, at least wow. just from my personal experience of the sales reps that I've met. Half have never actually read a book since they graduated college or left high school or whatever. Mm. And so this book, initially the setup was for them. It was built to be for people that, Hey, I'm not going to go read a lengthy chapter book where I'm only going to get 10% of the value. Mm -hmm. So in my readings, and I typically read about 100 books a year or so, and that's not just reading. I do Audible too on double speed. So yeah. it's not that I'm sitting down reading 100 books, but I would always take notes if something struck me as important, even in the middle of the gym. If I'm in a set and in the middle of a rep of a set and I hear something, I stop, I'll stop my set and then I'll go take a note on my phone saying, hey, that was really important. Mm -hmm. And so I've probably been taking notes since heavily notes on sales type stuff since 2010 or so. And mm. so I had a big library of stuff that I thought was important. It wasn't just sales related, but everything I read since I was in sales, I kind of attributed it to how does this help me in sales, whether it was from Goethe or any philosopher mm. or anything, how does it apply to sales? And so then, yeah. so I kind of had a library database. And then when I was putting the book together, I was like, okay, how can this be memorable? How can this be something important? So instead of a book that's filled with great idea, but 10% is something I can take away. How mm. can I make it with, let's say 99 chapters, hundred chapters where every single chapter is important and it's short enough that I just get the main message. And so then I'm inspired or sparked enough to go study it on my own. If I want to go deeper into the subject. So it's a very, you could call it even a superficial book in yeah. that it doesn't go deep into any one topic, but it does give you enough of a foundation that you can apply it right away. Yeah. So that, that was kind of my, my purpose and my focus was, hey, there's so much good stuff out there, but what is going to be most important as people move forward in their sales mm. career? Mm. Yeah, that, that's quite striking, actually. And that's something that certainly resonates with my experience of reading the book is that you say it's superficial. I, I, I think you're doing yourself an injustice by saying that because what you're talking about are really rock solid principles in here, things that, that are, are time tested and scientifically proven in many cases as well. So I, what I like about it is that you can delve deeper and you invite the reader to delve deeper into each of these things as well. So you give a quick summary of Cialdini's six principles of influence, but it's like, well, by the way, go and check out Cialdini for yourself if you want to learn more. And it, it goes on like that. So I really appreciate how you're inviting people to, to learn more. What interests me, Mario, is, is what you said about most salespeople not reading a book since they left high school or college and why you're different. And you tell a story at the start of the book, which kind of answers that question. Can you tell us a little bit about that story in terms of your, your family affiliation, if you like, with reading and books? Yeah. So it's kind of interesting. The story that I talk about in the beginning of the book is one of my ancestors. 
And I didn't know this story though, till I'd already been in sales for 10 years. So it's kind of interesting, but mm. I got into my love of reading in a kind of a different way, but I didn't really like business books or nonfiction until I was a professional. Right. But mm. the, the story is kind of incredible in that in, in Western North Carolina in the, um, the Smoky Mountains, there was a farmer, he had a bunch of kids and he was just working on his farm when a traveling salesman stopped by. He was a sale back then these traveling salesmen in the, in the, in the early 1800s, what they did is they would try to get people to buy their books or buy what they were selling and also give speeches at the local community centers or the local churches or the taverns. And then hopefully people would pay them after they gave these speeches. So they were mm -hmm. kind of like modern day philosophers trying to get people to listen to their talks. Mm -hmm. And so this one traveling salesman, he um, sold some books to a farmer and the books were ancient stoic philosophers. Um, and once he sold those books to him, that, that, that farmer read them and really liked them. So he named his next mm -hmm. two kids after him. One of those kids, he named Cicero, happened to be my great-grandfather. Wow, that's an awesome Cicero. name. Yeah, yeah. Imagine Cicero. being called Cicero. <laughs> I know, imagine your name is Cicero, right? Yeah. And his son, he named one of his sons Cicero, and they called him Chick, though, instead of Cicero. But Right. Um, so my great-grandfather loved reading more than even... Um, his father did. His father read the books and was was interested, but he would skip work. He would stop doing work on the farm and just go sit under a tree reading books. And mm. it kind of helped him because he was the first one that then ended up going to college. He went to medical school. Um, first, he went to dental school, went, became a dentist. And after a while, went back to medical school and became a dentist. Mm. Um, and he just loved reading. And he was a very... He, he, and it was all because his father had bought those books. So in his farm area, later, more in the story that's not in the book, is in their county... Those were the first two um, non-Bible books owned by individuals in that county at that time. Wow. He was the first one that bought those books. So it was a Western County, North Carolina. And he ended up, because he was a doctor, though, he was able to eventually save his dad's life. His dad got into a farming accident and his hand had to be amputated. And his son was able to save his life all because he was educated, right? Mm. And so it kind of inspired me that, hey, it was a salesperson that initially started all of that, though. Mm. It was a mm. salesperson that cared enough to share this message and say, Hey, I have these books that I know will help you. And they mm. helped him for generations because Cicero's children, he had 10 children of his own and all of them were extremely successful professionally or academically. They became a superintendent of schools where there's a school district in Spartanburg, South Carolina. John McCracken was the, um, the superintendent of the school district for 30 years. And now they have a junior high named after him, right? Or my grandfather was a colonel in the military, or there's lots of doctors and attorneys that came out of those 10 children. And so all because of one salesman mm. decided to say, hey, I have something worth sharing. And then that just showed that if you have something you can share, you should share it probably. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's a really, that's a really powerful story. And it's quite something that, that you didn't know about that until you'd already been in the profession for for, for a little while. So yeah. that's fantastic. So, so sales then isn't such a dirty word after all. It shouldn't be. It is, it is, it is still a dirty word, but it shouldn't yeah. be. <laughs> yeah. 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 And that, that's something that I get across that, or that comes across in the book. I, I infer that from, from the book as well, that you talk about how sales isn't sleazy, but salespeople can be. And, yeah, and you seem sure. to take a real pride in the fact that you are in sales and that you are a professional and that you are a craftsman in the context of sales. And that's something that, that particularly resonates with me because I think in the UK, maybe we're, we're even more skeptical about or cynical about salespeople than you are in America, in the US. 
I could be wrong on that, but that's just my kind of finger in the air take on it. Yeah. And and I have, like you, I have seen the difference between the two, the people who are real craftsmen and women who really care about their customers and really want to be creative in working with them. And then those who are just literally trying to, to get the sale in and, and move on to the next one. So, so I, I want to pick up on a comment that you made, which, which relates to this in the book. And it, it comes back to the title. And it comes back to this idea of care. You wrote professionally, every mistake I have ever made can be boiled down to two main reasons. I didn't know enough or I didn't care enough. Can you elaborate on that a little <laughs> bit and how, how you came to that conclusion? Yeah, I, the, the hard part was actually you first have to admit that it's your fault, right? Sure. And because if you're a victim, then it's somebody else's fault. So the hard mm. part is really just saying, hey, I wasn't a victim of the situation. Something I did caused this situation. And now in real mm. life, there are victim situations. We're not talking about those. We're talking about sure. in a situation where something bad happened and could I have done something different to avoid that situation or create a different outcome? And most mm. of the time, my minus response always was, no, it was their fault. It was the client's fault. It was my boss's fault. It was somebody else did something yeah. that affected the way I performed. And so the first step is you just have to kind of say, that's not necessarily true. And even if it is true, it's not a truth that will help me. So I have to embrace yes. a different truth that will help me. Right. Mm. And so you, often we make mistakes when we're young or new in a career where we don't know something. We say something that we think is true, but it might not be true. So we don't know it's not true or we don't know how to help somebody. And so that's mm. maybe just you don't know enough or you don't know how a process works or you're, you're selling a complex solution to somebody, but you don't know all the details. And so you don't mm. know something. So you make mistakes. And that's, those are easy to fix because you can just go study and learn yep. and make the mistake. But when you don't care enough, and sometimes it depends on your skill set. Some people aren't very detail oriented. Like I'm not very detail oriented. So for me, learning to care about details, even if I'm not good at the details, but I have to mm. care enough to get them right. So I don't make mistakes. Or mm. if you cared enough about your client, you want to just ask superficial questions. You go deeper. So yeah, at least... I can look back and say, if you care enough, you'll find out whatever it takes to solve the problem. And if you don't care mm -hmm. enough, then you'll just kind of skate by. And sometimes that works and sometimes it doesn't work. But mm. all mistakes can almost be fixed by either knowing enough or caring enough. And usually it takes a combination of both. Yeah, I love that. It's so, it's so simple, but it rings so true. And I like your point as well about, about victimhood and that, that chosen identity. Because many times... Look, like you say, quite rightly, that there are situations in life where people are genuinely victims of, of horrible things. Yeah. But in, in the situation where you feel like you've been hard done by in your organizational context or the customer's not been fair with you or whatever, you can choose whether to take that particular mantle on. And if you take that on, then you've got to ride it out and you've got to yeah. take all of the consequences. So you might have people feeling sorry for you, but do you really yeah. want people feeling sorry for you or do you want to go out and, and get the results? So it's, it's like that old binary of you can, be a, you can be a victim or a winner, but you can't be both. And, and that's something that, that I think bears, um, it bears reflecting on, certainly in, in the, the world that we live in today. Yeah. Okay, very good. I, I also like just, just from the, the foreword in the book from Jeb Blount, he, he talks about that there's a particular phrase that he used he says how we we feel before we think and i read that and i thought okay yes we really do you know that scientifically about how the brain works 
So how does that then relate to care about the fact that we that we feel first? Well, if you've ever walked up to a car lot to buy a car, you can feel if the salesperson right away just wants to sell you. And if they're attacking you or stalking mm. you just so they can sell you, you can feel it before they ever open in their words. So yeah. even before they start talking, you can feel their energy, their presence. Yeah. And I think that's true with every relationship. That's why when you walk into a room and you meet a stranger, you have that sense, oh, is this a good feeling or a bad feeling? And I think mm. intuitively, we all can kind of tell the intentions of other people. That's why you feel scared when you don't know why you feel scared sometimes, or you mm. feel, hey, this might not be a good situation or I'm not safe here. I think in every situation in life, if we're paying attention, we feel before. And our objective then as salespeople, though, is to not bring negative energy and to not bring mm. that negative feeling to other people. If we can create initially a positive atmosphere, a positive feeling, then mm. it opens the door to start showing that we care. But we have to mm -hmm. care enough to think about their needs and wants first before our own needs and wants. And yeah. the biggest problem, though, I see is how salespeople are paid and structured they're paid and rewarded to often not care about the customer. Mm. Whereas if you go deeper, that's not necessarily true, but that's how it's perceived. Yeah. And so they, they see the easiest route to not care. And then that comes across in everything they do, in the emails they send and how they make their phone calls and the conversations they have. If your initial driving motivation is wrong, every action is going to be wrong. And that's yes. hard to overcome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's really interesting. So it talks about the the focus and where the focus is. Because I have to I have to speak to this and, and be devil's advocate a little bit on here because because you're talking very much about caring about the other person and putting their needs first. What if what if a cynic says to you, Well, of course, you're only doing that though to get the sale. So so really you're just being selfish. What what would you say to that? Yeah, it's true, right? Okay. Very, very true. <laughs> it's not wrong to yeah. want to feed your family. Absolutely, it's not yeah. wrong to search for win-win situations. Yes. So, yeah, sure, it's true, but why? And then if they say it in a cynical way, if, they, if you say that and say, yeah, but what's wrong with that? Sure. What's wrong with when I'm making dinner, I feed you dinner so you're not hungry anymore, but at the same yeah. time, I made myself dinner and I fed myself. Excellent. There's nothing wrong with me feeding myself as long as you're getting fed too, right? Yeah. It's sharing, yeah. it's community, it's togetherness. So when people say that, they're, they're miss I think they're missing the whole point of a sale. Mm. Yes, it's a win-win relationship. And if you're not searching for a win-win, then it's wrong. If you're looking to screw mm. somebody over Wolf of Wall Street style, where you know what you're selling is wrong and garbage, you have to mm. walk away. And I've been with a company where once I got to that point where I felt once I was selling, I couldn't believe it, and I had to walk away. And mm. it was really hard to walk away because it was a good position and it was a, I felt it was had a good status, right? But I had to walk away because I didn't believe in the product anymore. And that happens mm. to lots of people. Lots of people I've talked to walk away from a product they don't believe in anymore because they don't believe it's giving the outcomes. And so mm. if that's the case, then you, you might have to do it. But yeah, of course, the purpose, what we're, why we're doing something, but there's multiple reasons to why something happens, right? Mm. People build things for lots of different reasons, and they all can be true at the same time. They don't have to be mutually exclusive. Yes, exactly. I, I love that point. And it, it speaks to those, those mentalities that I know Stephen Arcovi talks about in Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, the scarcity mentality, where it's like, it, it's either it's this dichotomy of either I win and you lose or you win and I lose, which is just obliterated by the abundance mentality, which means that actually we can both win. So I like that response. And I like that, that you step into that and say, well, actually, yeah, of course, I'm helping you so that I can help myself, but we're both going to be, we're both going to win together. 
and it's not going to be me doing you over. We're going to be working in partnership towards a shared end, which is going to benefit us, each of us respectively, but also collectively as well. So, yeah, I really like that. I think that might be part of the problem with the perception of, of sales in the UK as well, is that that isn't seen often enough, perhaps. Perhaps that there are behaviours in, in salespeople, just in general daily life, that people see and they're, they're accustomed with, that don't really give them the value that they might like. And they might have buyer's remorse about something. They might feel like they've been misled and that they haven't got the outcome. So that's another, I think that's an, another really important point you make as well about the salesperson believing in what they're selling. I, I can't imagine trying to sell something that I don't believe in. I, I don't think, I don't think I could do it. I think I'd turn into a lousy salesperson oh, pretty sure. quickly <laughs> if I was trying to sell something that, that I didn't believe in. Um, okay. You mentioned in the book, I think that there's an axial moment, a pivotal moment that you talk about in the book where you say, once I began to care, everything changed. And this is in relation to your sales career. So tell us a little bit about that. What was that moment? How, how did you come about the realization that, that you really needed to care? What kind of preceded that? And then what happened afterwards? Well, yeah, early on in my, in, in, in my first sales job, I was so, I never wanted to be in sales. That's a hundred percent true statement. I never wanted to, I didn't dream as a kid, hey, I'm gonna be a salesperson when I grow mm -hmm. up, right? It wasn't part of my plan. And so when I got the sales job, I took it because of the opportunity and the needs of my family at the time. And I and so I was learning it on an academic level. I was studying, mm -hmm. I was trying to figure out how to be a good salesperson, what to say, what to memorize. And I wasn't focused on the other people. I wasn't focused on who I was selling. I was only focused on what I had to do. Mm. And that was really, really hard because I learned everything I should learn, but I couldn't apply it. Because if you don't care about the other person, no matter what you apply, they're going to feel that you don't care about them. Mm -hmm. So they're going to feel it. And so I think the pivotal moment came and it came at stages. It wasn't all at once. It was that first stage was I have to care about the other person. And then that helped me be a great salesperson. But then mm -hmm. when I became a sales manager, my focus went back to stop caring about the people I was leading and started caring about the numbers that I had to report to my boss. Right. And so mm -hmm. it happened multiple times throughout my career where I had to figure out, okay, what am I supposed to care about? And then if, if once your focus is the right way, then everything else makes more sense. Yeah. But if your focus is wrong, nothing makes sense and you get confused. Yeah. Yeah. So in a practical sense, just to give us some examples, what does it mean to care, to make this idea of care tangible in, in a sales context, whether it's for the customer or for people in your team? So a lot of it is in how you ask the questions, I think. I think that's the first evidence. Are you asking questions to make your life easier or to make their life easier, right? Mm. And so one way may, lots of people always on a sales call will they'll say, well, do you have approval to sign off on this project? Well, when you ask that question, all you're saying and all you're asking is, hey, can you may help me make the sale? Mm. Or are you Instead worth talking it, to? Yeah, yeah. Are you worth talking <laughs> So you're qualifying them as somebody. Yeah. You're, you're insinuating that they're not worth talking to unless they yeah. can make the decision. Yeah. And that right there is treating them as an object rather than a person, as a tool, as a means to an end. And mm. that's not who they are. They have needs. And even if they can't sign off on the project, they're talking to you because they have problems too. And so mm -hmm. I think a lot of it starts in how you ask questions. Mm -hmm. The second then is after you're asking questions the right way, it's how you respond to their questions. Lots of times 
and this is happens all over in the sales world. And this is what really aggravated me a lot in my early in my career is they teach you to avoid questions you don't want to answer. They teach you mm. to just skip over questions. But anytime someone does that to me, I can feel that they're avoiding the question or they didn't mm. answer it or they didn't answer it the way I felt was appropriate. Mm -hmm. So if you don't respond to the person the way they expect to be responded to, they're going to feel it. And eventually it's going to build animosity. It might not the first time, mm. but if they keep asking for the price and you keep saying, well, I can't give you the price, mm. then you're kind of hiding or you just annoy and say, well, you know, that's, it's variable, all this stuff. And that, that, that even the top trainers today teach you how to avoid answering those type of questions until yeah. the right time. And I don't agree with that philosophy at all. I believe mm. the more transparent you are, the more your sales are going to increase. And every single position I've been in, that's been proven. The more transparent you are, overall, you'll have way more long-term success. Short-term, mm. yeah, you might lose a few deals, but that's yeah. the purpose, right? You're supposed to not serve people you can't serve. You're only supposed to serve the ones you can. And so yeah, that's how you can weed people out without making them feel horrible is you just be 100% transparent and then they can weed themselves out. You don't have to be the one weeding them out mm. and making them feel less than. Yeah, absolutely. I love that point about price. I'm, I'm smiling because I came across that early on in my sales career as well. You know, don't give, don't give people the price, you know, for goodness sake, someone asks you for the price, don't give them it, you know, make them work for it and make them jump through all these ho hoops before you actually yeah. tell them what the, what the thing is. And, and the whole point is that the price, I think Seth Godin in one of his books or an interview that I listened to, I can't remember which it was, but he said something to the effect of in terms of your marketing, your message should really be that this, that this isn't cheap, but it is worth so much more. Or no, this costs a lot, but it's worth even more than that. And that's yeah. really the point, isn't it? It's about having those conversations with people to determine, can I really serve you? Can I really deliver value to you greater than what, or much greater than the cost of, of what it is that I'm charging for the thing? For sure. So, yeah. So, so a lot of what you're doing is you're, I suppose you're, I wouldn't necessarily say you, you're being an, an iconoclast, but you're taking some of these these time-honored sales traditions, if you like, and you're taking them on, really, with, with such a fundamental principle as care and actually wanting to genuinely serve the people you're speaking with, which, which is really powerful, actually, because I find that it's quite irrefutable. When you try and argue against it, I think it's very difficult, isn't it, to so, you know, how, how do you argue about caring for your customers more, for example? It's, it's kind of irrefutable when you take, even when you take it to the nth degree and look at it from, from different points of view. Um, so talking about, talking about customers then and talking about moving from that transactional relationship of I've got numbers to hit and I need to sell you something before the end of the month to I want to build a relationship with you that is going to last for not just weeks, months, but years, how do you go from that? How do you get from being on the opposite side of the table to someone to the same side of the table, yeah, yeah. working shoulder to shoulder in partnership with them? Yeah, if, if your goals end up aligning with their goals, that's really the only way to do it. And so one of my favorite mm -hmm. books is by Ian Altman. It's called Same Side Selling. So it kind of brings up that point where you get on the same side as them. That's the whole mm -hmm. metaphor of the, his whole book. And so the purpose is, you find out what they want to do and what they want to accomplish and what they're afraid of. And sometimes mm -hmm. they don't know what their end result is going to be, but they know what their problem is and they know they want to overcome the problem. So sometimes they know the end result, sometimes they don't, but mm -hmm. either way, once you can show, so I don't believe true empathy actually exists, but I believe you should try to practice empathy as much as you can, because yeah. you'll never understand what somebody else is going through fully because mm -hmm. you can't walk in their shoes, but you can at least try. 
And I think that's where caring comes in in that example is mm. the more you can try to understand what the person is going through, then you can actually then get on the same side as them and they'll be able to feel it. Mm. And a lot of that goes into what you suggest and what you share with them. Lots of people hold back knowledge or hold back information mm. and that doesn't help anybody. You give as much information as you possibly can after you know everything that they want to tell you. And sometimes yeah. though, people don't open up until after you tell them everything you know because they're worried you're going to misuse the information or use their information against them. So it's definitely uh, a game of sharing information and hopefully eventually getting to the point where they open up enough to tell you that you can get on the same side. Cause if they're not open for you coming to their side of the table, they're never going to let you on their side yeah. of the table. You can't force your way to their side. Yeah. So yeah. you just have to have genuine conversations, right? And those genuine yeah. conversations turn into trusted relationships eventually. And sometimes you can do it mm -hmm. in one call. Sometimes it may take three or four calls. There's mm -hmm. no speeding up the process. It's really, how no. do you ask questions and do the questions show you care or that they, they, do they co show that you're selfish, right? Yeah, absolutely. That, that just reminded me when you said that how you can't speed up the process. It reminded me of the words of Stephen R. Covey when he said, or he wrote, with people, slow, slow is fast and fast is slow. In other words, you've got to take your time with people and relationships. You can't just, just railroad people through and, and force them to do what you want to do. I have to say, in terms of, because I like to work in partnership with customers and, and get on that same side of the table. Yeah. And one of my frustrations, maybe a weakness of mine, is when people don't necessarily want to do that. They want to have that, that relationship in its certain place and they want to keep it in that place. Yeah. But, but we've always got to remember that that's their choice. And if, they, sure. want to, if they want to work like that, and we can serve them like that, then, then that's absolutely okay as well. And so, so it's, um, it's very much about meeting people where it is, isn't it? It is. Yeah. You can't force anybody to make a decision or, and the more you pressure someone into to make a decision, the more they'll have buyer's remorse or the more they'll just mm. back away and won't do business. So you're right. You can't force relationships. You can just do your best to help them. And mm. that Stephen R. Covey quote reminds me of a Navy SEAL, a U.S. Navy SEAL quote that says, slow is smooth and smooth is fast. So mm. if you want a frictionless relationship, yeah. you don't force it. And if you mm. want it to be fast, you start off slow so it can be smooth because in the end, a smooth relationship is a fast relationship and the trust can build much faster if there's no friction. Friction yes. is what causes slowness. And that's in anything in life. Friction slows everything down. Yeah, I love that. I love that analogy because it's you think of it in terms of physics and obviously you want to reduce friction if you want to go faster. So it works. It works very well. And we can all relate friction to to relationships quite easily as well. So, yeah, it is yeah. very much about that. Interesting. Now, we're talking about serving other people, about caring for other people and putting their own needs first or their needs first. What about self-care? Because you do make some reference to things like you make references to things like prayer and meditation and different references to self-care. So so how does self-care fit into caring for others? Yeah, that's it's, it's different for everybody, for sure. But for me, at least I've noticed when I start getting angrier at people and not just people I'm working with, but if I start getting a short temper or my first thought is, oh, that's dumb or, or I don't like that idea. If my first thought is negative, then mm -hmm. I know that something internally is already wrong, that I have to go fix something. And it's more my first shot should thought your our first shot, our first thought should always be 
why did they say, if you don't agree with it, it shouldn't be, oh, that's dumb. It should be, why did they say that, right? Our yes. first shot should be to try to understand. But when I notice that's not my first thought, then I know that, okay, what else is wrong? And so you can then look mm. back and have an audit, right? You say, okay, have I been doing the things that align with my values? Have I been spending enough time doing other things outside of work that I need to do? And for some people that might be prayer meditation, for others that might be getting enough sleep, for others that might be community service. It just depends what you need. For others, it might be exercise, right? Or it could be all of them. But when you notice, hey, sorry about that. The dogs are barking back there. But okay. when you notice that you're not behaving in the way that you want to behave, usually it's a reflection of something else in your life. And that's where self-care comes in. And for everybody, it could be different. But I think the self-care is super important. And you just have to figure it out. Yes. I like that you talk about emotions and negative emotions as being an indicator that something's wrong internally, because we talk about these things and these ideas, we talk about these principles, and we can know them intellectually, but we have to apply them and we have to kind of take our own measure of where we are on a regular basis so that we can look after ourselves and ensure that we are fit for purpose in terms of our heads, our hearts, our spirits and everything else. Yeah, and I think sure. that I think that's a really important point because you're like me in the sense that you're a bibliophile. You read a lot of books, an awful lot of books, and you get wisdom from from everywhere. And I think that is that's fantastic. And for me, I know and I'm sure for you as well, that will always be the case with the sort of people where we're always going to be learning. And I think there's so much to be said about becoming as well and and integrating all of that that material as well because. And, and you speak in the book also about habits and building habits, because that's how we can almost automate certain behaviors within ourselves. It's like writing a, it's like writing a computer script or computer program for ourselves. So actually every morning for me, I have a certain morning routine and it's almost like the minimum viable routine for me to function well on a regular basis, but it doesn't fail. It's absolutely rock solid because I've had a load of things that have happened in in that particular time, a lot of external stresses, but I know that every single morning it's like hitting the reset button. So I'm getting back to, to where I want to be on a level playing field. And then I can go again for the, the evils of the day, so to speak. So that's quite interesting. I, I think it's, it's good that you mentioned about self-care in this as well, because I think that there is a problem when a lot of people feel like they have to sacrifice themselves and they, they're just working, 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 hustle, 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 and there's nothing, there's no payment of attention to those internal feelings. So they might feel cross or angry at something minor, and it might be an overreaction, but they don't pay attention to that. They don't listen to that and think, well, hang on a minute, that was an overreaction. I did overreact to that. And what's going on? Have the conversation. You know, sometimes I talk to myself and I'm like, yeah, yeah. what's going on, Tom? What, what's happening? And it sounds a bit crazy, but actually it works really well because then it means that I can step back. And, and do what I need to do to, to get right, so to speak. So yeah. that's great. I, I have to mention as well on, on this regard about courage and faith and belief. And these are things that come up in the book. And I have to ask this in the context of care, because someone reading this might think, well, if your goal is to care for the customers, then why, why, do, you need, why do you need courage for that? Surely you can just go out and do that. Who's going to Who's going to scorn you for wanting to, to care for them and help them? So, so where does courage come into this and what's the value of courage? So courage is often used synonymously with bravery, but they're very, very different, actually. So bravery mm. is taking action 
in the face of fear, grief, or pain, right? It's when you're afraid mm -hmm. to do something or it's painful or the result is unknown. You have fear, grief, I don't know, pain, something's very painful. It's just taking action. So yeah. you can be very brave by jumping off a cliff. That's brave, but it might not mm -hmm. be the smartest thing to do. Courage <laughs> is taking the right action in the face of fear, grief, or pain. And that's where the difference is. So if you do something that requires bravery, that's great. But if you do something that requires courage, that means you're doing the right thing. And often doing the right thing is hard to do for a couple of reasons. One is you don't know if it's the right thing to do. So that mm -hmm. makes it hard in the first place. But once you figure out what the right thing to do is often doing the right thing, isn't the easiest thing to do. Mm -hmm. Caring for your customers is often harder than going the short way and just disqualifying people or throwing them off or getting mad at them or being angry or just lying in general, just straight lying is often mm. easier than telling the truth in lots of situations or avoiding hard conversations. That avoidance is the opposite of courage when you're avoiding hard conversation. And so mm. when a customer's unhappy with you or something you said, you just avoid it and ignore it until it goes away. That's mm. the opposite of courage. So courage is often hard, but it's the right thing to do. And yeah. it takes courage to love somebody the right way. It takes courage to ask the right questions. It takes courage to do what you need to do. Whereas bravery, it's, it's needed. We need to be brave. Yes. But courage, I think, is a little more important. Yeah, I like what you say about that in terms of stepping into people's dissatisfaction and unhappiness with us. Because you mentioned this in the book as well about complaints. As if to say, complaints are great because someone's telling you exactly what they need. And you don't always get that information. Sometimes you have to ask a lot of questions and do a lot of research and digging to, to find out what it is that the customer actually needs. But if someone comes to you and says, hey, I've got a real problem with the service in X, Y, and Z areas, then bingo, you've, you've got something that you can actually help with and you uncover more about the pain points. And there might actually be other solutions that are more fit for, fit for their purposes in the process. So that's great. Yeah, I like that, that idea of using courage to step into the issues rather than shy away because it's, it's like the saying goes, if you don't want to know the answer to the question, then don't ask the question. So you can care for people and ask the caring questions, but you might not necessarily like what you hear. So then, yeah, <laughs> being hard. courageous is, yeah, exactly. Being courageous is then following through and actually doing something about it. I just want to shift gears a little bit here, Mario, if that's okay, yeah, yeah, and sure. talk about labeling you mentioned oh yeah labeling in the book what is what is labeling and how does it relate to sales success so labeling is probably my most favorite topic of the entire book because mm -hmm. we label ourselves and we label other people mm -hmm. um, and a label is anything you call someone so if you see someone down the street and they flip you the bird you say hey that's a that person's a jerk you just yep. labeled them a jerk, right? Or if somebody just got out of jail, you can label them a thief or a criminal. That's their mm -hmm. label, right? Or if your child does something good, you say, good boy. That's a good boy is the label that you gave them. Mm -hmm. And the problem with labels is most people live up to their labels. And that's yeah. proven in sociology and psychology. When criminals are called ex-cons, they're much more likely to go back to jail and do another crime than if they're given different labels. And so there's been lots of studies about those kind of things. Um, my personal story is I remember my whole life, my mom called me her little peacemaker. So six kids, my mom, she's a single mom. She raised all of us by herself, single mother. And she always called me her peacemaker. And so I thought it was my duty and responsibility, especially in my teenage years, whenever there was fighting in the home to stop the fights. And we lived mm. in a little tiny home, six kids, you know, there's going to be fighting We're all on top of each other. So she called me her little peacemaker. When I was 18, 17, maybe, 
she actually told me the real story that when I was five, six years old, I was her worst child. I was <laughs> always fighting, always doing the worst things. And so she labeled me something that I wasn't yet, but I grew into the label, right? And so then ever since then, and when I was in college and I studied sociology, I learned about something actually called the labeling theory. And I'm like, oh, that's what my mom did. Mm. And that's what we can do. So if we label a customer as bad, or we label mm. a prospect as bad or not interested, that's the label we give them. And they're going to live up to that label no matter what, mm. because we treat them the way the label says to treat them. We always do. If they have a label, we're going to treat it. If this milk says expired, we're going to toss out the mm. milk because the label says toss it out. So whatever the label is, we're going to follow. So we can yeah. choose the labels we place on others and the labels we place on ourselves. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I think that's interesting because I think it relates to storytelling as well, doesn't it? Because the, the label is almost like a truncated version of, of a story because oh, for sure. you, hear, you hear the label and you think, okay, well, that means that there are all these a priori assumptions associated with the label. Oh, well, that la this label means all these different things, this whole list of things. And some of them can be very negative and some of them can be yeah. quite positive and some of them can be fairly indifferent, but they're quite powerful. So another thing that you talk about in the book is the power of stories. And you talk about good, you, you seem to draw a dichotomy between good stories and bad stories. So, so what would you say the difference is between a good story and a bad story? And how can we use more or, or create more good stories and, and do away with the, the bad stories. So a bad story is a story that if the, if that story was true and we live up to that story, whether it's true or not true, not the point, we mm. always believe the stories we tell ourselves. And so yep. if the result of that story doesn't align with our goals, it's a bad story. Mm. Any good story is one that results with us alignment with our goals. And so giving stories to customers that align with their goals is good. Mm helping them see, giving them stories that don't align with their goals is bad. Even if it's a good story in general, even if the motive was good, the story was good, the purpose was good. If it doesn't align with their goals, it's a bad story. Mm -hmm. And so a good story is one where, Hey, I want to become this way. So I'm going to tell the story in this way. And your life is full of stories and what excuses we accept or what realities we accept becomes our story. And it's the same mm -hmm. for our customers. Just because something's hard or always been done a certain way doesn't mean it has to be done that way in the future. And a story can paint that picture for them saying, hey, this mm. partner did it this and this way, which could also become your story if you follow in those footsteps. Right. So there's lots yeah. of ways to tell different stories. But stories, are, like you said, are just in-depth labels. Basically, the yeah. label is the short version and the story is the long version. But in the end, it's it's all part of that same kind of concept. Mm -hmm. So the stories that we tell ourselves are crucial and the stories that we tell to our customers are crucial. What about the stories that customers tell us? What sort of role do those stories play in relation to us as salespeople? Then? Well, that's the, the best you can actually ever find because that they tell you what they're thinking and what they're believing. Mm -hmm. So they tell you their goals, their dreams, their needs, all of that comes out in their stories. Mm -hmm. They can tell you exactly how their last project failed and all the reasons it failed. And so you can know exactly how they approach problems just by how they approach their last problems. And so mm. you can see this is what's happening. This is what's going on. And you can use that story then to tell them another story and say, hey, this is your mm. current reality. But imagine if we could do it this way or based on what you said here, is this what you're saying now is what you want your goal to be? And so you yeah. can rephrase their story and use their story to help them create a new story. But yeah, the stories mm. they tell you are so vital because mm. that allows you to understand them. And once you understand them, you can do anything. Yeah, I like what you say in the book as well, just moving on from this about 
how you, 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 you seem to, I can't remember the exact words, but you seem to dissuade people from presenting too soon. And what I mean by that is that it seems to me from having read the book that, that you, want, you want people reading it to gather more information, to gather those customer stories. And then, you know, have a, I think you put a quote in there. Oh, sorry, there is a quote from you. I believe it is. Yeah, have a conversation first. Never present until you know enough to create a personalized experience. I, I think that's really important. I think it's something that's easily missed because it's very common for, for salespeople to have the presentation. I remember I worked for, for a company once and we had this, this quote-unquote business case and it did not meet the reality of the vast majority of customers. And it was, it was early on in my sales career and it was quite painful because I was sometimes laughed to scorn. However, what I did have on the back of that were really good conversations because it was a question of, I didn't shrink away from that. I was, I was asking the question of, well, why do you think that's hilarious? Or why do you think it's ridiculous? And what is your actual reality? So I think it's really important to be able to tease those, those stories out of the customers and then, then apply it, like you say, in their context so that it can, you know, these ideas that we have in, in ivory towers or with a small amount of people in a focus group, when they actually come in contact with the real world and those specific people, they do actually deliver the value that that we hope that they will. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that's a great example. Yeah. Yeah, very good. I'd like to talk a little bit about mentors as well, because you speak very strongly in favor of both mentors and coaches. Yeah. What would you say to somebody who's looking for a sales mentor in terms of firstly, the, the sort of attributes that they should be looking for in a sales mentor? And secondly, how they should go about becoming a mentee? Yeah, that's a good question. And it really depends a lot on their situation. But a mentor is someone who's done before what you want to do. Yeah. Where a coach hasn't had to have done it. You have mm. lots of the best coaches in the Olympics were never gold medalists themselves, but they can coach mm. Olympians, right? So coaching is different than mentoring. Mentoring, though, they have to be someone that's done what you want to do. So that way, when you talk to them, they can give you real world insights. Hey, this is how I accomplished it. And this is why I was successful. And it's more about getting that insider knowledge and friendship and guidance. And hopefully they can make connections for you and introduce you to the right people. There's lots of reasons why you'd want a mentor. Whereas coaching is super needed, but very, very different than mentoring. Mentoring mm. is definitely more personal. And how you go about finding a mentor is you need to find someone that's done what you want to do. So mm. if you want to become a top salesperson at your company, find out who the top salesperson is and figure out a way to help them. And the way to get a mentor is you help them enough so that then when you do make the ask, then they want to help you back, right? Yeah. I remember there was a, a, a book that I really, really love called My Orange Duffel Bag. And it was by an author called Sam Bracken. And he was homeless and he lived out of a duffel bag when he was a mm. teenager. And it was an orange duffel bag. And he still has that duffel bag that he lived out of when he was a, a teenager and he was homeless. He had a, had a very hard childhood, right? He ended up getting a football scholarship and walking on on a football team, then earning a scholarship and doing all these things and had a great career. And I just loved his book so much that I said, hey, someday I want to be able to tell stories the way you do. Mm -hmm. And I would support his book. I would tell everybody I knew to read his book. And he took notice of it. And so then when I asked him to be my mentor, he was very, very willing to say, yeah, I would love to be your mentor because mm -hmm. you've been supporting me. And so mm -hmm. I think the best way to get a mentor is to support them first and however they need to be supported. It might be different. It might be somebody at your company. And you, you want to find a way to support them so they want to become your mentor. But mm. that's a mentor and that, they're very important to find, I think. 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I have to ask another question. It kind of relates to the mentoring question as well. And it's about staying in your lane, because this is this is a question I meant to, to ask earlier, just in terms of in relation to care. I think yeah. it's tricky when you are a, a caring person, you can very easily get pulled into the drama triangle and become the rescuer. And yeah, yeah. anybody who presents as a victim, like, oh my gosh, or, or somebody who is who is genuinely a victim and genuinely suffering, that there's a lot of suffering that goes on in the world. And and it it can be really difficult. It can be self-negating when we care about everything, when we feel the pain of, of the sins of, and sorrows of the world. It, it can be self-negating. Yeah. So how can we how can we stay in our lane in terms of what is within our area of stewardship to, to focus on? And and how can mentors help us with that as well, particularly in the, the sales context? <laughs> well, that's a really tough question. And I that that's really hard for most people, especially the more you care, the more you're open to those situations, mm-hmm. right? And that's really tough. Um, I guess mentors could help in that situation by 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 having probably been there before. If they if there's someone you want to become like, they've obviously then been in the situations that you're currently in because they've gone through yeah. it, right? And so that could be something you could bounce off them and you could get their ideas. But as far as how do you know when to push and when to pull back or when to give more or give less, that's that's a really difficult question. And there's almost, for me personally, it's probably different than some people, but it's it comes down to prayer and meditation and really mm-hmm. thinking, Hey, can I do this person more help than harm? And mm-hmm. do I have the energy and bandwidth to do it without sacrificing my real priorities? Right. Yeah. And for some people, that's not a good answer. But for me, I kind of that's how I approach all my most difficult problems. And that sounds like probably a very difficult problem that you'd have to approach in a way that would be good for you. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a level of discernment that needs to be done. And you have to find out how you are going to discern the amount of energy, attention, that you're going to put into a, a particular issue or, or if any at all, if, if, if it's beyond your, I think it was, again, I'm, we're talking a lot about Stephen Alcovey, aren't we? We're talking yeah. about, uh, yeah, you know, the circle of the circle of concern, all the things that you yeah, care exactly. about, you're concerned about. And then you've got your, the smaller circle of influence in the middle about the things that you can actually do something about. So, okay, very good. I had to ask you that in, in the context of, of care, because I think that's something that a lot of people will wonder about in terms of not staying, you know, straying outside of their lane and, and confounding themselves. Yeah, I need to in, think more about that because I really don't have a good, a good solid way to talk about that yet. So that's good. It's, that's a great question. <laughs> it, it's tricky. I, I found it. I found it this this weekend actually that there were a few things that that were were were, tr- were tricky for me, shall we say? And, and and I felt as I was getting a bit distracted, which which is funny for me because because in my own mentoring, I help people to fulfill their own purpose in a world full of distractions temptations and challenges but of course i'm still in the world myself as well so i have to i have to i have to walk the talk so to speak in that respect but it was a reminder to me that actually there are so many distractions and temptations and challenges that that it requires it does require real diligence and real focus on what the goal is what the mission is what the purpose is so that we don't get pulled about in all these different directions so Definitely, yeah. definitely something that I think is on to, to be addressed on an individual basis in terms of in terms of their particular focuses and, and abilities and opportunities as well. Yeah. And um, just going back to the book, then, Mario, that there's something that you put in there about memorization. And I think it's the only time that you mention this, but you, you write memorize your value statement 
don't worry about memorizing anything else. So what is a value statement and why is it so important that you advise that we memorize it? So I guess I'll answer the second part first is the reason it's important to memorize is because that's the whole reason you you exist in your current role is to help mm. your other your to help people realize that value. Now, yeah. how it plays out that value might be different for different companies or different clients, but you're you're bringing some sort of value to them. And if yeah. you know your purpose, it's kind of like if you know your purpose, then you know everything else can fall into place. And so that's yeah. why the value statement is important to memorize because you can say, hey, we help these people overcome these challenges to get these results. That's basically yeah. a value statement is this is what our clients face, these challenges. We help them get these results when they have these challenges. And so it's, mm. it's basically a way for, it's a short story that helps them paint the picture saying, oh yeah, I am that person. It's like, I help overweight people lose weight and feel good without sacrificing all the foods they love. So, okay, mm. I am an overweight person. So I want to feel good. I want to lose weight, but I don't want to sacrifice the foods I love. So I fit all the boxes of that story. So mm. if you can tell that story about whatever product or service you're selling, that's what you should memorize because that's your value. And yeah. if you know your value and what you're doing, then everything else can fall into place. Then you can have any type of conversation you want because it always goes back to the main value. If mm. your conversation is going in other places, it might be good because that's what they need, but you might not be a right fit to solve their problems if the value you bring isn't the value they need. And that's where conversations come into play. Mm. That's so important, isn't it? To, to have the integrity to be able to step back sometimes and say, you know what, I've, I've, listen to what you've had to say here's what I do and in the discussion I've realized that actually there are other people that, that, that meet your needs better than I do so yeah. that that's really important and that that's where again I, I think it, it, you have to be courageous to do that because you might have other people leaning on you to get a result yeah, i.e exactly. some some sales yeah, in hard. yeah and so you have to have the, the courage and the integrity to be able to to step back from that but I love the idea of the value statement and been really focused on that because it's quite a simple formula really isn't it or a simple structure again it's it's a story that you're telling but if you stick to it that that again it comes back to that point about staying in your lane as well I think if we if we are able to memorize it and internalize it then I think that does help us to to stay in our lane so we're not caring about things that, that maybe aren't within our purview towards the end of the book Mario you write about 21 rules for success yeah, yeah. Which are the most important of those 21? Oh, shoot. <laughs> That's a tough one. Um, I think the first one, you, you take care of those you love and trust, right? That's always first mm. responsibility. No matter what else happens, and I guess there's famous quotes about it. I think it was a David O. McKay that said, no amount of success will, outside success will compensate for failure in the home, right? Yes. And yeah. the home could be anything to anybody, right? Like your home, even if you're single, might be your closest friends or a cousin yes. down the street, whatever it is. But the people you care about need to be the ones that you spend your most effort on or mm. else your values are aligned because you always do what you care about most. And yes. so if you actually care more about, let's say some people go to the gym for four hours a day, they care more about the gym probably than other results. And that's fine. That's what they care about as long as that mm. aligns with their values. So mm -hmm. I think the, I think if you honestly take care of the people you love and trust and you do that and everything you do is for that purpose, then everything else kind of will fall into place. And at least you won't feel misaligned or bad about yourself. Because mm. if you feel bad about yourself, then everything else goes off the rails. But once mm. you can start feeling confidence, feel good in yourself, everything is kind of working in that sense, then you can put the other pieces of your life together. 
Mm, yeah, yeah, I like that. I like that. One particularly that I liked of, of your 21 rules was be true at all times. Integrity eventually always matters. And that word <laughs> eventually is so important because we have these issues of short-termism cropping up again and again and again. And then there seems to be this harvest of bad results or corporate scandals or mm. implosions that seem to have come out of nowhere but really they've been they might have been years in the making because of of behavior that that doesn't align with with integrity so so i like that integrity eventually always lots matters. of people can win by lying mm. short term but yeah. eventually it always matters yeah. maybe not in the short term but it, it always does eventually mm. and that's just for yourself too some people never get caught but mm. inside you know that nobody can feel good long-term by being bad, right? Yes. It just doesn't work. Long-term, yeah. it doesn't work. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It reminds me of a conversation that I had with someone when I was a, a missionary with the LDS church in Madagascar. He wanted to go and cheat oh, yeah. on his wife and he wanted me to, to tell him why he shouldn't do that. And I couldn't talk <laughs> about sin. I couldn't talk about God. I couldn't talk about Jesus. And the thing that clinched it was the fact that he would always know inside himself that he'd cheated on his wife. And I also put it to him, I said, well, if you are so sure that it's such a good thing to go and cheat on your wife with this beautiful woman who's texting you, goodness knows what time of night, then why are you asking a 19-year-old kid about his opinion on it? Why do you care what my opinion is? And he was quite cross about that. But, but I think that the principle bore out and he, he realized that actually that's a good point because I am going to always know whether my wife finds out or not that I've actually done this thing and I carry that with me. I can't yeah. expunge that from my character. Yeah. So that actually leads on nicely to, to one of my final questions, Mario. In terms of the book itself, what advice would you give to somebody who reads the book and really gets what you're saying and says, you know what, it is all about care. It is all about caring more for the customer. It is all about doing things in this particular way, but they work in an organization where they're not allowed to do that or they have a tyrannical boss who's bearing down the neck and saying close and close now and just get it done to hell with caring and all that sort of stuff yeah. what would you say to that particular salesperson good luck no you try, <laughs> try your best and then if you're in sales and so this is the beauty of sales for most of the world if you're in sales um and i've, I've worked in asia south america europe north america most of the world, I've never done business in Africa, so I can't speak for the whole world, but mm. in Australia, New Zealand, most of the world, if you're in sales, you can find another job mm -hmm. in sales. You can sell something else. Mm -hmm. And that's because for so long, sales was just treated as an also ran. So the barrier to entry is very low. Yeah. And so it's a very portable skill set. If you can learn to care about someone, you can mm. learn about the product, you can learn to sell. And so my per first advice would be find a way to find a place where the boss and the company have values that align with your own values. You'll be yes. much more successful financially and at peace. But until then, yeah, you just have to start caring more about your boss, right? They mm. just have to care enough about what they want to figure out, okay, how can I serve them the best while I'm here? You have to make the best of a bad situation because let's you can't, maybe you have bills to pay, right? You have to feed your family. You can't quit your job today. So you have to make the best of a bad situation, which is hard. And you know mm. what you're doing is, is going to be very difficult. But yeah, first step is don't rock the boat until you can. The second step is do everything you can to get find an organization that aligns with your values.
Mm, great point. I love that point as well about the portability of sales skills and how you can move around because everybody needs sales. There's been all this talk about automation. Oh my gosh, you know, the future of, of the sales profession, but people need people. And so I think yeah. that, I think that, that we're always going to need salespeople. This has been a fantastic conversation, Mario. There's so much value in it, just as there is in the book itself. When does the book actually come out? October 26th is the release date. Excellent. And where can people buy it from? I'm guessing Amazon. Yeah, Amazon. I think it's not available in the UK till November or something, 7th okay. or 10th or something. But it's going to be available, at, hopefully, in most places. But yeah, Amazon is the... And then, of course, Barnes & Nobles and other book sites. But Amazon is the one everybody knows. Okay, super. Well, having read it myself, I highly recommend it. Well, thank you, Tom. I appreciate that. Thanks for your questions and conversation. Yeah, my absolute pleasure. Mario, thank you so much for your time on the Real Clear Values podcast. Hey, thank you very much. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the Real Clear Values podcast with Tom English. If you know anyone who is looking for success that's both meaningful and sustainable for themselves or their organization, then please send them this podcast. And if you yourself are looking to create a life of purpose, meaning and fulfillment, for your own version of sustainable success, then I offer a mentoring program that will get you on your way. Just go to 3stewardships.com or message me directly to tom at 3stewardships.com. That's tom at 3stewardships.com. Until next time, I'm Tom English and I wish you all the best in your own pursuit of sustainable success.